Good morning. It is good to be together. Now, I hate to tell you this, but Mike is out of town, and so you're stuck with me. But uh, I'm thankful, and I look forward to the opportunity to be together as we study from God's Word today. Now, as we come together, this past week, as I was considering what I was going to, to speak on, what I was going to talk about, I was speaking with Tyler and James at one point, and they mentioned that of making my faith my own. There comes a point in our life where our faith has to become ours. Our goal is within young people to instill this thought. You know, even as we get older, it could be that we've been accustomed to doing things because of parents or others, and there comes a point where it needs to become our faith. Within our faith, there needs to be a depth to it. There needs to be importance. As we think about the great thought, making my faith my faith, we're going to look at a few scriptures and passages and we'll recognize where it comes from, we'll recognize the great purpose in it, and we'll recognize God's design within His Word for your faith. Now this morning I do want to make mention, if you are visiting with us, we are glad to have you. We've got many here with us. I see we've got a special Lindsay Acre that I don't get to see very often, but we're glad that she is here with us, uh, as well as many others. We're thankful that each one has come this way. Before we begin, I also made notes. I want to make a special appeal coming up on Monday, which is tomorrow. We will have Monday night for the Master. I know they mentioned it during the announcements, but I want to make sure that you mark it down. Uh, tomorrow night will be Monday night for the Master, and we want you to be involved in that. Now, as school has started back in session, Ms. Drury had mentioned that she would be glad to do the Wednesday meal. And so this month, we are going to have a Wednesday night meal, and we need you to sign up. So when you leave this morning... Do not forget to sign the list, otherwise she won't be prepared to feed you. So there is a list on the table right out. It'd be my left. I guess it'd be your right currently. But when you leave, it'll be on your left. Uh, there's a table and there's a paper and you write your name and you write how many are in your family that will be coming to eat. She did this for VBS, for the teachers each night. And it was wonderful food. In fact, tonight, not tonight... Wednesday night will be one of those meals that she did. I believe we'll have um, spaghetti along with salad and green beans. And I believe there's some bread. It's going to be real good. I encourage you, plan to be here for some more fellowship together. All right. Back to my faith. In our life, we have to make our faith our own. Just a moment ago, Philippians chapter 1 and verse 21, Paul writing there says, For me to live is Christ, my purpose in life. For me to live is Christ, but he says, but to die is gain. Which is far better, because then he goes to be with God. He goes and resides with God. He goes to his reward. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 21, as we talk about our faith... We need to understand that faith needs to be such so that we have the thought for me to live is Christ. We understand our purpose. We understand God's design in our life. We've got to come to a point where a faith is established. Spiritual faith 
is only going to come through teaching Scripture. You know, if you look at your dictionary and you pull out the word faith, it will say something like complete trust or confidence in someone or something. You know, within generic faith, there are many things you can have faith in. There are many people that are here today that have faith in their football team that when the day comes that they're going to play, my team is going to win. Brother Billy Sasser has a little white pickup that he believes that if he gets in it, it's going to start and it's going to take him wherever he goes. Connie, on the other hand, believes it won't, and so therefore she generally doesn't ride with him. Now we see physical faith. We can have faith that the pew is going to hold us up when we sit down, but when you talk about spiritual faith, we're on a whole nother level. There's a whole nother, there's a, a nother depth to it. Spiritual faith will only come through the scriptures and through the teaching of scripture. I want to start this morning, look at Acts chapter 8 and verse 35. Acts chapter 8, we are looking at the, uh, the Ethiopian eunuch. Philip goes on his way and as the Ethiopian eunuch is riding in the chariot and he studies, you get down to verse 35 says, then Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture preached Jesus to him. What scripture? Well, it started in Isaiah chapter 53. You can go back in verse 32 and verse 33. It's a reference back to Isaiah chapter 53. He's, he's studying here. Why? First off, because this man had a desire for spiritual things. He had a desire to know more. In fact, when he's asked, in verse 34, the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask of you, whom does the prophet say of this, of himself or of some other man? He's got a desire to learn and to know. But notice in verse 35, he began at that scripture and he taught Jesus. He taught the message that is more important than any other message. He taught the message that would bring about faith. When you think about faith, probably no verse pops out in your mind more than, well, maybe you would say Romans 10, 17, than Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1 says, now faith is the substance. It's the, it's the thing you can grasp, that you can hold on to, that you can recognize. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. As you look at faith, you know, it wasn't that long ago we started building a house. Underneath that house, you have those foundational pieces, concrete pillars that hold the house up. You, you put these under there and you might drive by the house and you would say, oh, well, I see the pretty white color or the, the black windows. But underneath all of that, there is a substance that holds it firm that keeps the house standing, that keeps it upright. Faith is the substance, it's the, it's the backbone, the, the undergirding, it's the strength underneath it. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. We've got something we can look forward to. He says the evidence of things not seen. Have we seen heaven? We have not. But I'll tell you what, everything around the substance points to it's a reality. 
As we think about establishing spiritual faith, we've got to be like the Ethiopian eunuch that had a desire for it. Because he had a desire for it, he was searching. As you look at scriptures, the scriptures are surrounded or they are all pointing to one main theme. Acts chapter 8 and verse 35, Isaiah was looking forward to, it says he preached Jesus. He taught him about Jesus. You go back to John chapter 20. John chapter 20, if you look at verse 30 and verse 31 there, it says, And truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book. He did a lot of other things that aren't written in the book, but tell me, what's the point? He says, But these are written, why? That you might believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and the believing you might have life in His name. What's the purpose of Scripture? So that people can know Jesus. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 7. If you look at Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 7, you can see there the, the red writing. It says, Then I said, Behold, I have come in the volume of the book. It is written of me to do your will, O God. What's the book all about? It is written in the volume of the book. It is written of me. If you read this book from front to back, it all revolves around the coming of the Christ. It all revolves around the purpose of Christ. My goal today would be to convict people to understand that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Jesus Christ is the hope in your life. And if you don't have faith, my prayer is that your heart will be pricked just as they were in Acts chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 10 there is a quotation of Psalm chapter 40. But we see the book is written about Christ... Doing the will of God. The honest heart must have a desire to learn and to study. You know, you go back to the parable of the, of the soil. And you get to a soil that has a desire. Not only does he hear it and get excited, but the good soil allowed roots to form. Allowed that substance to take hold in life. So that they had a faith. ...that was built within them. In Acts chapter 8... ...if you go back to the Ethiopian eunuch... ...you can drop down into verse 30... ...or previously to verse 30... ...it says Philip ran to him... ...this is prior to their beginning the study... ...Philip ran to him and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah... ...and he said, do you understand what you're reading? Do do you fathom it? Can Can you follow along? Does it make sense? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me... And he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. You know, even though he was spiritually minded, he still sought guidance. He sought counsel. He wanted someone to help. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 15, it says, The fool, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but the wise, he seeks counsel. 
He looks for those to help and to encourage. Now that doesn't mean that someone can give counsel and steer them away and say, no, that Bible's not right. That's not the right type of counsel. If someone's trying to steer you away from God's word, then you know it's not right. But the counsel that he desired was one that would help him to understand what was the meaning. And so the Ethiopian eunuch there is going to study And Philip is going to preach Jesus. And ultimately, much good will come from it. Get down to Acts chapter 17 and verse 11. It says, these were more noble or more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica. Why? Because they received the word with readiness of mind. And go on, he says, and they searched the scripture daily. They listened to counsel. And then they went back and compared it. They continued to study. They continued to consider what had been taught. They put it up against the standard, the Word of God, and they said, does that fit what God said? Think of 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15. You go to the New King James, it says, be diligent. Go to the Old old King James, said, study. Study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed rightly dividing the word of truth. If we're to have a faith, it's only going to come from study. If you believe that coming here and seeking counsel, listening on a Sunday is going to establish your faith, I dare say it's just going to scratch the surface. If we aren't studying on our own, to verify what is the truth, we're going to miss out on the entire message. You're going to have the faith of Mike Hickson. You're going to have the faith of Jared Rhodes or Billy Sasser or D.O. White or uh, whoever's teaching your Bible class. You'll have a portion of their faith. But my question is not about making... Dio's faith, my faith, but I want my faith to be my faith based upon a study of God's word. You know, as we talk about obedience to Christ, I think oftentimes people get the idea that I've got to understand everything. You know, if you go back to Matthew chapter 28, verse 18 and 19 there, as he gives the, the commission to go out and to teach and to spread the gospel, get down into verse 19, we see... We see they're baptized, they're obedient to the gospel message, which is what happens in Acts chapter 8 as you study the Ethiopian eunuch. He's taught Christ and then he sees water and he says, well, why can't I be baptized? Why can't I be a follower of Christ? Matthew chapter 28 and verse 20, we, we see the individual that was told to be baptized or was baptized in verse 19. And then what we understand there is a commitment. When a person comes to a point where they understand that Jesus is the Christ, in verse 19, they choose to be baptized because they understand, for me to live is Christ. My purpose in life is Christ. Nothing else matters. As I study God's word, if I understand what Christ wants me to do, I will do it. That's what it means. For me to live is Christ. Nothing else is that important. And you get down to verse 20, and it says teaching them to observe all things. Okay, back in verse 19, they'd been taught who Jesus was and they were baptized. 
But the teacher in verse 20 has a continual task to teach them to observe all things. Did they understand everything when they were baptized? There was more learning to do. What did they understand? They understood who Jesus Christ was. They understood his purpose in life for them. And they were making a commitment that from this point forward, for me to live is Christ. If I realize that something's amiss in my life, and I made that commitment to Christ, I'm going to fix it. If I figure it out tomorrow, I'm going to change it. If I don't realize till five years from now that what I'm doing is wrong, I made a commitment to Christ and I'm still all about Jesus. I jumped in with both feet and I will stay in. I will continue to grow and to learn and to do better. Matthew 28 verse 20 says, Teaching them to observe all things as I have commanded you. And he says, And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Even to the end of the time. The end of the time. We see the honest heart. You know, the Bible is given as a record just so that man has the ability or the opportunity to believe in Christ. The Ethiopian eunuch had the opportunity to believe the message as he studied from Isaiah, as he was taught about the Christ. Think about John chapter 3 and verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. What was the purpose? Man could have everlasting life. Go down to verse 17. It says, For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world. Jesus didn't come to condemn you. But that the world through him might be saved. Christ's purpose. Mark 16 and verse 16 said, He that believes and is baptized shall be saved. The purpose of Scripture is so that you can believe. Now I think everything else is going to follow after. If you make the proper associations within your belief, you're going to choose to be obedient. You're going to choose what Christ asks you to do. When you believe, you understand belief and baptism... You're going to choose to be obedient to it. You're going to choose to be baptized. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Where do you want to be? You want to go from non-belief to saved. He couples the two together and says, this is how you get there. Well, ultimately, all this ties back to God's word. I mentioned you might have thought of Romans 10, 17 earlier. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. You don't get faith outside of God's word. If you're going to have a true spiritual faith, it's going to come through God's Word. Do you have evidence of God outside God's Word? Absolutely. But for you to have spiritual faith, biblical faith, it's only going to come from a study of God. If you want to have an understanding of math, you study math. If you want to have an understanding of English, I don't know how you can understand it. Uh... It's a tough language. That's why I'm so bad at it. You study English. If you want to understand God, you study the book about God. All right. Establishing faith. In order to establish faith, I want to take a quick second to look at the design of God's word. What was the point? What was the purpose? 
If you look at God's word, you recognize that the Old Testament was given in view of the coming Christ. Go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. It says, and I will put enmity between your between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. Here he's, he's uh, this is the condemnation there at the, the serpent as he's done uh, this great evil. He says, I'll put between your seed and her seed. It says, he, he, the seed of woman, he shall bruise your head. The problem is when you get whacked over the head, there's a good chance it could kill you. Get hit in the temple just the wrong way, it's going to kill you. It says, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So it stinks when you bruise your heel, when you, you kick something real hard. And then right after you say, why did I do that? I just broke my foot. All right, we've got this, this big kick. It's going to bruise your heel. It's going to hurt. It's going to be a pain. It's going to make life miserable for a while. I remember it wasn't that long ago we had Elisa walking around in a boot. She didn't like her boot, but it helped her get better. All right? She understands a bruised heel. It's painful, but it doesn't kill you. Now, a death blow to your head is different. Think back to David and Goliath. What happens when he gets hit in the head? Kills him dead. We've got the he here, if you read, it's going to be capitalized because it's a reference to Jesus. Through the seed of woman was going to come the Christ that's victorious over Satan, the death blow. All right, the Old Testament given in view of the coming Christ. But you know, Christ is in there even before that. If you go to 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 20. It says, He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world. Start there in Genesis 1.1. It says, In the beginning. Now tie that in with 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 20. It says, er, He indeed was foreordained before, before the foundation of the world. Before the in the beginning in, in Genesis 1.1. The reference was Christ was planned for you. You go forward, the New Testament was written, including the life, the death, and the resurrection of Christ in the first four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. We go through the first four Gospels and we see the life of Christ in action. The moment where, where our faith can recognize Jesus is the Son of God, the Emmanuel, the great I Am, the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. He is everything. He's what it revolves around. The New Testament then gives the establishment and the regulation, regulation of the church. You go into Acts and beyond and we see the, the church as it comes into existence. But you go back and we've got Christ teaching at the end of the Gospels. We see that he's crucified. We see that he's buried and we see he's resurrected. The resurrection of the Christ... Following that resurrection, the apostles were told to tarry in Jerusalem till they were endued with power from on high, until the Spirit would come. Luke chapter 24 and verse 49 says, Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. Acts chapter 1, it starts out and it says, And being assembled together with him, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You have heard from me. We see the recognition, the purpose in Acts. 
Now, as you look at Acts, we've got the pivotal moment of all of the Bible. Transitioning from looking forward to the Christ to the recognition of Christ has died for you. In Acts chapter 2, you get down to verses 4 through 11. We see in verse 5, they were dwelling in Jerusalem. Verse 4, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. You can liken this to Luke 24 and verse 49 where they were endued with power from on high. Here we have it happening. It's taking place. You go down and we see all these things. We see them start to speak in tongues. Everybody says, whoa! They're not supposed to be able to speak like that. What's going on here? You get down into verse 14. Peter's standing up with the eleven and begins and preaches the first gospel sermon. Inviting all to be obedient to Christ. Referencing back to the old law. Referencing back to the, to the prophets. And everything that said this was Jesus Christ. He didn't tell them everything on that day. But what he did tell them was enough to convict them that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. My purpose this morning, or my goal this morning, is that you understand. Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and no matter what you have to do in your life to change it, to be right with God, you need to do it today. Go down in verse 14 through 36, he's preaching this message. We see, we see it building up, and it comes to the climax Verse 36, he says, Let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. They said, oh no. Verse 37, it says, They're pricked at the heart. They were cut. They said, I did this. It was me. Oh no, what can we do? How do we make it better? And in verse 37 through 40, he gives the open invitation. He says, here is your opportunity to be obedient and to be forgiven by that very blood of Christ that you shed. So he tells them, verse 38, repent, let every one of you be baptized. Notice, for the remission of sins. Why? Because they understood who Jesus Christ was. Not only do we see the open invitation, but if you go down to the end in verse 41 through 47, we see the addition of obedient believers to the cause of Christ. Verse 40, it says, And with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. They still don't know everything, but they know they need to change. Verse 41, it says, Then those who gladly received His word. You see the honest and sincere heart? Those who gladly received His word were baptized. Why? Because they understood the purpose. Because they wanted to have remission of sins that He talked about in verse 38. It says there were about 3,000 souls added to them that day. You can go down to the very end. It says, Praising God, having favor... With all the people, it says, and the Lord added to the church daily those who are being saved. You don't do the adding. God takes care of it. We aren't going to vote you in. God puts you in. But because they were obedient to the gospel, they said, I'm a part of the saved. 
I am a Christian. You know, sometimes when Jesus was teaching, he used an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Now I'll tell you, when I was a young boy in the mid-90s, I went to a, a church camp, and I remember them, one of the teachers there standing up, and, and he read a little story. And it meant a lot to me at that time, and I would say at that age, I wasn't at the age of accountability. But I remember that day saying, when I grow up, I'm going to be a Christian. I'm going to follow God because I understand what he did for me was the greatest gift ever given. It wasn't too long ago that I I remembered this story and so this past year at camp I said that I wanted to read it. So I got online and I found it and there was like a copyright from 2009 or something. I'm like, well, I heard it in 1995 probably, so I know it was written before then. I shouldn't say there was copyright, it was dated. But I'm going to read it to you today. And maybe it'll mean a little bit more to you. You've probably read it before, or maybe you have. It was titled The Mystery Flu. I thought about it when we had coronavirus pop up because I remembered, you know, I read a story something like that. And I know we don't have time, but I'm going to read it anyways. The day is over and you're driving home. So you turn on your radio, you hear a little blurb. There's a little village in India where some villagers have died suddenly, strangely, of a flu that's never been seen before. It's not influenza as we were used to, but three or four fellows are found to be dead. It's kind of interesting and no one knows exactly what it is, so they're sending in some doctors. They want them to investigate. You don't think much about it, but on Sunday, coming home after church services, you hear another radio spot. Only this time they say, it's not just three villagers, but now it's in the whole village. He says, there are 30,000 villagers in the back hills of this particular area in India, and it's on TV that night. CNN runs a little blurb. People are heading there from the disease center in Atlanta to check it out, because this disease has never been seen before. Monday morning you get up, it's the lead story. It's not just India, it's Pakistan and Afghanistan. It's Iran, and before you know it, you're hearing the story is everywhere. They've coined it now as the mystery flu. The president had, had to make a comment. He commented that he and everyone are praying and hoping that all goes well over there. But everybody's wondering, how are they going to contain this? That's when the president of France makes an announcement that shocks Europe and the world. He's closing the borders. No flights from India, Pakistan, or any other countries where this thing has been seen would be able to fly in. And that's why that night you're watching a little bit of CNN before you go to bed and your jaw hits your chest. When a weeping woman is translated from a French news program into English, it says, there's a man lying in the hospital in Paris dying of this mystery flu. It's come to Europe and panic strikes. As best they can tell, once you get it, you have a week or so and you won't know it. But then all of a sudden you'll have four days of unbelievable symptoms and you're going to die. 
Britain closes its borders, but it's too late. Southampton, Liverpool, Northampton, and Tuesday morning when the President of the United States makes the final announcement, due to a national security risk, all flights to and from Europe and Asia have been canceled. If your loved ones are overseas, I'm sorry. They cannot come back until we find a cure. Within four days, our nation has been plunged into an unbelievable fear. People are selling little masks for your face. People are talking about, what if it comes to this country? And preachers on Tuesday are saying, it's the scourge of God. It's Wednesday night and you are at church for prayer meeting. Somebody runs in from the parking lot and says, turn on the radio, turn on the radio. While the church listens to a little radio with a microphone stuck up to it, the announcement is made, two women are lying in Long Island, New York, hospital, dying from the mystery flu. Within hours, it seems this thing just sweeps across the country. People are working around the clock trying to find an antidote. Nothing is working. California, Oregon, Arizona, Florida, Massachusetts. It's coming. It's as though it's sweeping from the borders. Then all of a sudden, news comes out. There's a code. It's been broken. They've figured it out. A cure can be found. A vaccine can be made. It's going to take the blood of somebody who hasn't been infected. So sure enough, all through the Midwest... Through all those channels of emergency broadcasting, everyone is asked to do one simple thing. Go to your downtown hospital. Have your blood type taken. That's all we ask. And when you hear the sirens go off in your neighborhood, please make your way quickly and quietly, safely to the hospital. Sure enough, you and your family get down there late on that Friday. There's a long line. They've got nurses and doctors coming out, pricking fingers and taking blood, putting labels on it. And taking it away to be checked. Your wife and your kids are out there and they take your blood type and say, wait here in the parking lot and if we, can, if we call your name, you're dismissed to go home. You stand around scared with your neighbors, wondering what in the world is going on. And is this the end of the world? Suddenly a young man comes out of the hospital screaming. He's yelling a name and waving a clipboard. What? He yells it again and your son tugs at your jacket says, Daddy, that's me. Before you know it, they've grabbed your little boy. Wait a minute, hold it. They say, it's okay, his blood is clean, it's perfect, it's pure. We want to make sure he doesn't have the disease. We think he's got the right type. Five-tenths minutes later, out come the doctors and the nurses crying and hugging one another. Some are laughing. It's the first time you've seen anybody laugh in a week and an old doctor walks up and you say, thank you, sir. Your son's blood is perfect, it's clean, it's pure, and we can make the vaccine. As the word begins to spread across that parking lot full of folks, people are screaming and praying and laughing and crying. But then the gray-haired doctor pulls you and your wife aside and says, may we see you for just a moment. We didn't realize that the donor would be a minor. We need you to sign this consent form. You begin to sign and you see the number of pints of blood to be taken isn't filled out. Well, how many, how many pints? How much blood will it take? The old doctor's smile fades. He said, we had no idea it would be a child. We weren't prepared. We need it all. But, but you don't understand. We're talking about the world here. You've got to sign. Please, we need it. We've got to have all of the blood. 
Daddy replies, but can't you give him a transfusion? He said, if we had clean blood, we would. Can you sign, please? Please sign. Numb silence, you sign. They say, would you like to have a moment with your boy before we begin? Can we walk you back? Can you walk back to the room where your son sits on the table? And He says, Daddy, Mommy, what's going on? Are you able to take his hand and say, Son, we love you. We wouldn't let anything happen. Unless it just had to be. Do you understand that, son? The old doctor comes back and says, I'm sorry. We've got to get started. We're running out of time. People all over the world are dying. Can you leave? Then it comes to you. Can you walk out while he's saying, Mommy, Daddy, why are you forsaking me? Why are you leaving? And it's over. Your son's gone, and the following week there's a meeting. There's a ceremony to honor your son. Here we sit today. Some people come and they sleep through it. Some don't come at all because they'd rather go to the lake. Some folks come in with a pretentious smile and just pretend that they care. But you stand there and know it was my son. Do you want to jump up and say, My son died for you? Don't you even care? Don't you care? I ask you this morning. Do you care? Does the story hit a little closer to home? I don't know why the story of the cross wouldn't be good enough, but sometimes it's just a little different story gives a little different perspective. God gave his son, his only son, so that we could have hope. My question today is, are you willing to put your faith in Him? Do you understand? For me to live is Christ, because Christ died for me. There was literally no hope for anyone. You were destined to die. Absolutely nothing could have taken the place to prevent you from losing your life. And Jesus Christ went to the cross. God gave his only son because it was the only sacrifice that was good enough so that you could live. My question today is your faith, your faith. Are you mindlessly going through the motions? Is it time to get real? Just a few minutes, we're going to have an opportunity to surround the table as Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper 2,000 years ago 
He was the son that was given so that you could have life. And the question is, have we let its significance lose its excitement? Did we just get caught in the motions of everyday life? Is your faith your faith? Don't do it because mom did it. And don't do it because dad did it. I could care less how many generations you've had family members in the church. If you don't do it because you understand that's what God's word requires of you, then buddy, you're not a part of the church. You can have your name on a pew. You can park your seat here every week. But unless you're doing it based upon God's word, I'm telling you, you are wasting your time. If you're not a Christian, I want you to know the boy in the story is my God. And he died for you. And you have an opportunity for life. You don't have to understand everything that takes place. You don't have to know everything that goes on throughout the week. But I need you to make a commitment today. For me to live is Christ. That's my purpose from here on out. I need you to understand that the Bible plainly points to Christ as the Son of God. He fulfilled it through offering and giving His life on the cross. And He was resurrected to be with the Father. He said in John 14, He's going to prepare you a place because He's coming back to receive you unto Himself. The question is, where are you going to stand when He comes back? My prayer is that you stand ready prepared if you're not a Christian today do you understand that Jesus Christ is the son of God understanding that there should be nothing in your life that you wouldn't be willing to give up understanding that Jesus Christ died for you within that commitment for me to live is Christ is the desire to repent to say, well, I'll get out of the sinning business. Whatever Christ tells me to do, that I will do. Within for me to live is Christ, is the acknowledgement that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and I'll live for Him. Within your desire to follow Christ, no doubt you want remission of sins. No doubt, Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, no doubt you want to be added to the church. Acts chapter 2 and verse 47. Also 41. No doubt you want your sins washed away. Acts 22 and verse 16. There's no doubt that you don't need to make that commitment right now. It's very simple. Because when we stand up, there's a pew in front of you. And your first idea is going to be to grab hold and to hold on. But this morning, instead of grabbing the pew and holding on, if you haven't given your life to Christ, I want you to let go. I want you to walk towards the front. And I'll walk towards you and we'll meet. If you're a Christian and you realize 
You know, I made a commitment and I haven't been true to it. I want my faith to be my own. I want you to do the same thing. I want you to stand up. I want you to let go of that pew. And I want you to walk this way. I know this was an emotional lesson. And I really try to avoid them. But at the same time, not aiming at your toes. I'm aiming at your heart. If you haven't given your life to Christ, please come now as we stand and sing.